but when she doesn't take it then her mind goes really uh, really off but it's an example to us you know of this first noble truth and we chant Tamajaka Sutta the uh, the Buddha based his teaching on the experience of suffering and so this uh, this is like a special teaching tonight because we can see the amount of suffering the human mind can create in a situation that is very benevolent and good. Uh, So they hear Mabhati, we all of us have nothing but goodwill towards her and you know, want the very best and yet her mind interprets everything in, in its own kind of uh, distorted ways that create her suffering. And so this is, this is an extreme example maybe, but this is very much what happens with most people. Their lives are a create, through distortions of their perceptions of a world where they feel victimized or been treated unfairly or, or uh, resentful or ungrateful or frightened, confused, uh, uh, unworthy, guilt-ridden, and so forth. And the mind creates all these mental states. And there's a certain level of normality that is allowed, and when it gets beyond that level, then we consider them psychiatric cases. (laughs) 
But in, in Buddhist terms, everybody's psychiatric case till you're enlightened. <laughs> so, they get <laughs> and some are, are socially acceptable, and others are not. So it's a, Buddhism is a, is a teaching uh, on reflecting on the way things are, on life. It's not trying to propound a, a belief system that we adopt as Buddhists and that we, we operate from some kind of basic Buddhist beliefs. Uh, the, the, actually, the, the, the directness of the teaching is to awaken the mind in the present. So the, the state of awakened awareness is the is the foundation for our lives, for our moment by moment conscious existence. Say uh, so if we give you a kind of uh, a dogmatic teaching of some sort, which might be very good in itself, a teaching that would might be based on you know truth and on wisdom. But still, the grasping of teachings uh, out of ignorance still leads to the same problem of suffering. The, the Buddha was pointing to the way to realize non-suffering in a very direct way was through awakening, through the awakened mind. And this is, a very, this is quite profound, but it's very simple also. Buddhism is, I think, probably... You hear from various uh, religious studies teachers here in Britain and in America that uh, so many of the students are interested in, particularly in Buddhism above any other religion, because it does, uh, you know, uh, its approach is very different from, say, a metaphysical, say, contrast to a metaphysical approach where you are asked to, you know, where the belief is in a psychology a metaphysical reality, the uh, Buddhist uh, uh, approach is through reflection on the noble truths, which are the, and the noble truth, the first noble truth is the ordinary experience we all share of dukkha and suffering. But just noticing how uh, in in my own mind, uh, just uh, how you know one lives in a world uh, that if if you're not my mind, when I'm not mindful, then I create a world of, full of of uh, creatures and beings and projections and and uh, fears and desires. Also, it's just the way it is. So the because uh, the the mind is easily conditioned to perceive to grasp perception uh, as reality. Positions that we take, ideas, views, and opinions, conditions that we grasp. So the, the aim of the whole Buddhist teaching is to awaken from this grasping uh, tendency to be able to reflect upon it, to awaken to it and see the suffering 
that we create through this grasping of desire and fear. So it is, uh, it's, it's subtle and uh, it's a subtle teaching, it's simple and very direct. And of course I've been about 33 years now, this is my 33rd Vasa, will begin tomorrow as a bhikkhu. And um, it does take time to break through, I mean to, to really uh, let go of these causes. Because even though, like in the first year, I did have uh, the insights into letting go, very clear insight, the tendency, the habit tendency, was the kind of overwhelming obsession with the grasping, ignorance and grasping, which was easily propelled me into heedless uh, and habitual activities, the thoughts and actions and speech. to keep awakening out of this obsessive impulsivity and uh, and compulsivity is uh, say the, the aim of our of our life the monastic form that we have is to encourage this awakened attention now this uh, awakened awareness isn't a critical faculty. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not saying there's any. It's not uh, saying that suffering shouldn't exist and there's something wrong with it. But it's pointing to this realm that we live in. And when you contemplate it in terms of of the way it is, it is. You know, when one is incarcerated in a sensitive form uh, on this planet for a lot for however your long your body lasts. So mine is six has reached sixty five years complete today. I'm now beginning sixty six years. And uh, so this uh, this is uh, this body since it was born uh, is, a, is a sensitive form. So it feels and whatever impinges and uh, and contacts it in a pleasant, painful beautiful, ugly uh, conditioned experiences uh, affect it. You know, one feels pleasure and pain, uh, happiness and suffering accordingly. Because that's the way it is. This is just a reflection on the, the natural state of, of existence as we, are, as we experience it. Now we can idealize a state where where like I remember as a child thinking, why did God create pain? If God was kind and loving, why did he create pain? I remember as a, you know, as a little boy falling down, uh, skinning my knees and uh, on, on rough pavements. And, and then my mother had put Iodine on the on the on the wound and it'd sting and it hurt and this pain. I said, "Why did God create pain?" You know, because uh, I was told God was good and loved me, 
Well, why would he why would he allow such a thing to happen? This this was question of a child, uh, you know, uh, love and goodness and and all that should exclude pain and suffering. Uh, was was the kind of logic of a child, at least uh, my childhood. So then, uh, when we recognize that not only is there physical pain, but emotional pain, and when you become socially conscious, and then you remember going, starting school, and and becoming aware of my relationship to others, to other boys and girls, and in the in the school, in the classroom, the teachers, and and how you know how some of the traumas of of early childhood, just around, uh, you know, trying to protect yourself from being beaten up or abused in various ways, because something in children tend towards uh, violent acts and and cruel acts, and, and it shouldn't be like that. Children should be pure and innocent and good. I mean, like I ideal idealize idealization of childhood. Teachers should be wise, understanding, compassionate. And they weren't always. Sometimes they were all grumpy curmudgeons with bad breath. Remember, I remember it leaning over my shoulder with bad breath, telling me how to write ABC. Why, if God loved us so much, why did he create halitosis and bad breath? So this realm is, as a, in terms of Dhamma, then, in Buddhist terms, we are aware that this is the way the world is. It, it, it's, uh, it's, it, it has the, the whole range from A to Z, uh, the whole gamut uh, of conditioned phenomena from the most refined, the most coarse and uh, the most beautiful, the most ugly, and so forth. So that in in our contemplation of the way things are, we, we like with the vipassana meditation, you're always looking at, at the way it really is. Pleasure, pain, happiness, suffering, good and bad, right and wrong, dark and light, male and female, uh, Justice and mercy and corruption and vice and evil and and goodness, heaven and hell, are conditions that arise and cease. They're the 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 they're conditioned phenomena. So they have a beginning, they have an end, they have a birth and a death. Now this is this isn't a logical. Uh, examination of conditioned phenomena it's an intuitive one so instead of just thinking you understand this because you you can understand the words they all make sense in their own way with Vipassana you're actually noticing changing this that when you really intuitively awaken to experience in the present you can't pin anything down it's in the continuous state of flux Every feeling of pleasure, pain, every experience of happiness and suffering and 
and then this continuous changing this. So we, the emphasis the Buddha made is noticing, awakening to change the way things are, that they're changing. There's nothing fixed permanently, absolutely, in goodness or in badness, right or wrong. Now, when we attach to perception, then we, we think things should be absolutely right, good, beautiful, and it shouldn't be absolutely not. There should be absolutely no evilness, pain, misery. Now, this is the thinking mind. The thinking mind uh, can create these kind of perceptions, absolute ties uh, based on on ideas rather than on intuitive experience. And of course, the Western civilization is very much a civilization that, that idealizes life, how it should be. Progress, development, uh, and uh, this idealization of trying to make everything better And where we have the society where there's justice and mercy and fairness, equality and freedom and all the best, we can create a, a, a society like this in our mind as, a, as an ideal. But as reality, society is like this. Even in monastic society, this community here, Amravati, they, it's it's, uh, it's uh, probably as good as you'll get. The morality, very high sense of moral integrity here. Uh, people that train here usually are quite, quite high, good people. People that really love the good and the true and the beautiful and who, uh, who are basically uh, wholesome and skillful or inclined or won't long to be that way. And yet even in a society of very good people, how much suffering there is in just the, the way we relate to each other. Why is that? Why, why can't... I remember somebody being very upset because Buddhists were not all Buddha, Buddha rupas. Buddhas. Remember in the Buddhist society years ago, somebody was uh, having some problems and there was some rather acrimonious things happening, words said, and, and this woman said, I didn't think Buddhists were like this. I'm disappointed. I said, well, I mean, Buddhists aren't always Buddhas. You know, they're, just, they're not any different from anyone, anybody else. Are you thinking of Buddhas? May Buddhas would not be like this. <laughs> well, this this way of reflection helps us to to flow with life and to learn from it, because uh, each one of us has our karma to live through. And I wondered why do I have to be like this? I you know, say as a as a as a teenager now I used to admire certain people and think, why couldn't I be like that? Why do I have to be like this? I didn't like myself very much. 
in comparison to how I viewed others. And I thought, they're much better off than I am. They're more intelligent, or they're more gifted, or more lovable, or whatever, and then and then see myself in terms of of uh, a critical mind, what you know, thinking I didn't quite get the best out of this this uh, conditioned realm. Uh, I didn't get the best deal, like I thought some others did. Why doesn't God give us all the, the best deal? Why does he, some of us, uh, some people get uh, kind of inferior qualities? And others get get better ones, or finer ones, or more beautiful ones, or they're born into privileged situations. Others are born into uh, horrendously underprivileged situations. Well, the, the the law of karma helps to explain this. I find this a, a helpful way of thinking because. Uh, this is what I have to, this is the way I am, the character that I have, that whatever its qualities might be, is my karma, the karma that I have to live with and, and learn from. So when I look at it like that, then I'm quite quite appreciative of it. Even it's, even it's not very good side of it. Even the faults or the, the weaknesses or the 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 flaws or the the even the even the inferior qualities I might have are then something I can accept and and learn from rather than feel that somehow life has been unfair to me because I didn't get all the best in the beginning. So in this uh, reflection on the way things are, we and we're actually tuning in to an awareness that is pure and perfect in itself. It's just the conditions that are in varying degrees of, of uh, good, bad, high, low, refined course. So the physical body, the, the mental states, the emotions, the perceptions, and, and, and each individual way we in experience life. Again, it's infinitely variable. But that which is constant and one with all of us is through this awareness. So this is what the Buddha was pointing to in this uh, teaching of the Four Noble Truths. Paying attention, awakening to the experience of suffering through accepting it I'm learning from it, willing to suffer, willing to experience, willing to feel, willing to be in this realm of suffering fully and completely with an awakened awareness of it rather than a conditioned reaction to it. So that makes all the difference between suffering and non-suffering. There is the natural suffering that comes just because that's, this realm is like this. The aging process, the sickness, the pain, the loss of loved ones, and, the, and all the rest. So that, 
that is the that's not we don't create that that's just the the natural movement and flow of conditioned phenomena from from its birth to its its peak to its degeneration and death that's that's the 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 natural state of things and then the, but then the Buddha's <coughs> escape from this wasn't through rejecting or denying or refusing to uh, have anything to do with it, but through totally accepting it. And even though that might sound like a very inspiring thing to do, it's quite difficult because uh, there's, uh, there's a tendency to resist, to, to try to control everything is so strong. But just starting out in this little way, just like this evening when, when uh, the 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 uh, nun was kind of dancing around me, I didn't know what what she was doing in my back and to her, and she can get quite violent sometimes, physically violent, uh, expecting to, expecting her to come and hit me on, <laughs> and uh, so I was. But I, I kept to this, I tried to use the situation for awakened awareness, to keep this centeredness of the mind in the silence of the mind, to where I wasn't uh, lost in, in the emotional reaction that, that, I, that I could easily experience if I, if I gave way to those, those tendencies. Well, that, to be able to do that is a, a way of, you know, it's, it's not, not easy to do, of course, because when you're dealing with, with the fear and with uh, uh, things that are unpredictable and uncertain and that is aroused, kind of even primordial fears. Because of being neurotic, I think it's natural to be frightened, to feel fear of what is unknown and unpredictable, uncertain and irrational. That's quite normal kind of emotional reaction to those conditions. But the the uh, that the way to develop awareness around that is to reflect upon it, and as you begin to to really understand your mind, how it works, then more and more you, you begin to trust and stabilize yourself in that center, that still point of centered attention, awareness, and openness, which is not trying to push the experience aside or run away from it, but embrace it, both externally and and uh, your own, one's own kind of emotional reactions to, to the, the conditions, existing conditions. The, uh, 
these noble truths are uh, I've found over the years it's that's such a kind of useful tool for reflection. The, the important thing to really to, conf- to confirm in our lives is that the natural state is pure that the true, your true nature is pure and deathless so it's in that way you're not as a personality which is conditioned all, all our personalities are conditioned and they change according to circumstances you know, so we have, we're not always the same person, you know, when you're with your parents or when you're with your friends or with, your, with people you like or don't like or with, with the opposite sex or with monks or with nuns or with uh, your own cultural group or a foreign group or whatever. We, we find ourselves changing, you know, person, personalities changing, adapting, reacting in various ways. And that that uh, that goes on endlessly. Just the 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 various uh, permutations and variations of conditioned phenomena. But the constant factor is this purity, this stillness, silence of the mind, which is which is here and now, and 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 when we really began to trust it and uh, respect it then more and more we incline to that to that still centered silent place here and now This uh, next three months is the starting tomorrow evening the Vasa retreat. So it's called the Rains Retreat, which doesn't make all that much sense here, but uh, it's uh, because of uh, in uh, the monsoon in India where the Buddha lived. If you've ever been to an Indian monsoon, you'd understand why. The Buddha established the rains retreat. So, the um, in Thailand also the, the the monsoon season it gets everything floods and 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 traveling in the way that monks used to travel is very difficult. They be asked to stay in one place for three months. So this is this is a carryover from that time in ancient India that has been carried on through this tradition up to this present Amravati Monastery in England. So I mean, it it uh, it's it this is what a tradition is. It carries uh, a, a teaching or uh, customs from. Uh, 
from a, from a previ- from previous generations into the present. So how we use this uh, three months is is then uh, how you know it's really up to you. Was the it uh, remember we first it was first described to me as a Buddhist lamp. So and this is how I first heard it. This defined when I lived in Thailand was first became among the Buddhist land. Well, I remember Christian land when I was a child. I was brought up in the in the Episcopal Church in America, where it was a very high high church. So, and high Anglo Catholic kind of church, and in Seattle. So we we keep these lantern this Lenten period very strictly. And we I'd like either give up sweets or something like that for a month. Lent for Christians was only one month. But when you're a child, one month without sweets is a real sacrifice. It was for me because I loved sweets. So it was a, something you have to give up. You have to give up something for Lent, something you really like. You've got a, an idea of, of you know, be, of torturing yourself. Kind of asceticism was encouraged saying more prayers or doing something, you know, that you wouldn't ordinarily do that is tough and difficult and, and renunciate and, or denying uh, that which you want, uh, trying to refuse things that you like. So Lent, uh, Lenten season was, was always, uh, was to me, the, uh, a sign that you had to uh, time to give up things. So when I heard Buddhist lamp three months, my first response to Buddhist lamp was to do that. Give up everything. So I remember uh, in the early days at Wat Pong, some of the, the Western monks, we used to try all kinds of things, you know, like uh, especially hardship kind of ascetic practices. Some uh, some would only eat bindabok food. They don't only then in the northeast of Thailand. Sometimes they 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 would only get rice if you go out in the villages. And they they bring the food to the temples. So sometimes these monks would only eat rice, sticky rice, for three months, like this. And the result of that is usually malnutrition. I remember uh, uh, Santajito, Venerable Santajito, who's now Steve Saslov. He 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 had a strong ascetic tendency. We we used to vow. We'd go to this very difficult village from Wat Bapong during the rainy season, where we had to wade through rice paddies uh, and up to the waist. Uh, and uh, sometimes it'd be so the water's so deep you'd have to you'd be pulling your robes up, and uh, and of course you know, you'd be carrying an umbrella and an alms bowl and trying to manage all <laughs> and these robes, and uh, and going through a, a flooded rice paddy in the mud. And I remember doing this. We really made a strong determination. We were having terrible kind of fungus on my feet, and and uh, after a while, uh, uh, 
I, I think when you're young, younger men like to do these kind of things. Now I have no no appetite for asceticism. Uh, I, don't, I realize it's not not really. It's not so much a renunciation as an attitude that that is important. So the renunciate attitude is not based on aversion, but on seeing the suffering that one creates through attachment. So it's it's uh, and so it's not just it's not trying to deny or get rid of or make any kind of uh, moral judgment against the world or value judgments against anything, but just seeing what the causes of suffering and 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 how uh, attachment to desire is the cause of suffering. Now, this is more of a of a mental experience than a physical one. Of course, it, it, from the mental side, it goes out into the physical. So, learning to, how to view, say, uh, I remember, because one tended to view the rains retreat as a Buddhist Lenten period, then uh, then we tended, that would bring back this, this kind of sanya, or these perceptions of Lent, as we were brought up to think of it in, uh, in the, say, Christian countries. So, so it did get into oftentimes making life extremely difficult for yourself for three months and then uh, you know trying to tough it out and and uh, prove yourself to recognize how we interpret life is very conditioned also even how a western mind interprets Buddhism we have to be careful of, of our own way of, of looking and, and interpreting uh, Buddhist teachings because, uh, if, you know, it can be quite different from, say, uh, from some other group like a Buddhist country where their their perceptual conditioning is very much influenced through uh, uh, Buddhism as a kind of basis, a cultural foundation. I noticed in my my cultural condition very much a uh, Judo Christian attitudes prevail for an Old Testament type uh, uh, values and judgment easily uh, arise in my mind on a, on a cultural level. So an awakening to this, this awakened awareness is is where you can even get beyond or transcend your own cultural limitations or cultural conditioning. Because through that awakened awareness, then it, that's a universal intelligence. It's not a cultural condition. No, no culture has made it into a condition. It's impossible to do that. It can only, you, can, you can only awaken to that. When it becomes culturally 
tainted, then you know, through your own particular cultural attitude, so whether you're born like in Buddhism, seem to develop uh, like Theravada, definitely in tropical countries. Then the Mahayana seemed to move up into Tibet and colder regions of the world. But when we look at Theravada Buddhism, it's all, most all of it, uh, its strength lies in Southeast Asia or India or Sri Lanka, a place like that, very uh, equatorial, equatorial or tropical areas. So that has a, a different uh, experience of life, being constantly warm and sun and with sunshine and and the the, the uh, rice growing country, uh, the rice eating diets and things like this have definitely a way of of influencing how we perceive ourselves in life and being say in northern hemisphere where you have to have cold winters where your your experience is the experience of coldness rather than of heat which is the dominant experience and uh, where you have to prepare uh, for a a winter in which uh, things aren't growing and don't grow and you've got to to learn how to preserve food and survive a a cold winter there's a different in a way of it would definitely influence how one perceived experience or oneself or just the difference between male and female having a male body or female body is how we perceive experience in life is it very much affected by the gender of the of the physical body so we can see you know how easy it is to misunderstand or to to pass judgments on each other or to or to uh, you know make statements about this from our own experience without recognizing its limitation, the limited nature of that and the conditioned nature of that experience. So in um, the Buddha's emphasis on mindfulness, this is where they, we, the transcendent awareness that we're, we're learning to take refuge in. Rather than a cultural perception or a religious perception or a, a view of any sort. So this is where, uh, like Buddhism does, have a, uh, has a universal approach. Why, why it does speak to us at a time where it is uh, uh, considered an ancient religion, and uh, and we, one can see it as as maybe having some importance or significance uh, at a different time, different age, and different civilization. When if we just looked at it culturally as a as a cultural experience, but notice that the Buddha's emphasis on the noble truth wasn't a cultural experience; it was the common ground of human experience. When we contemplate suffering, its causes, 
cessation in the way of non-suffering. This has nothing to do, this is not uh, noticing differences between cultures or ethnic groups or men and women. It's about the common experience of suffering that all human beings share, whether it's an ancient time or a modern time. The rich or poor, whatever uh, the conditions might be, suffering is like this. So uh, this this be beginning to awaken and and reflect and to to pay attention to the flow of experience in life is what is encouraged. So Buddhist meditation sometimes we might look at it as a as a uh, sitting on a zapu all day uh, going into tranquil state that certainly. Uh, you know, something that many of us like to do. I quite like sitting on zapus and going and concentrating my mind. Quite pleasant thing to be able to do. Uh, that uh, that is uh, that's one one experience. But when we look at the uh, what the Buddha was actually pointing to through his emphasis on the Four Noble Truths wasn't towards tranquility but towards awakening to suffering. So then the flow of life is that awakening to suffering like this evening right now with the, with the, with the, the, uh, the, the woman that was having uh, uh, her kind of uh, Psychotic breakdown here. This, this, this is uh, this, this is all part of the meditation. We can't say that that made meditation impossible. That what she was doing, the disruption and the and that that she was causing, was an obstruction to meditation. Unless you see meditation only in terms of tranquility, because you certainly couldn't go very tranquil with that. That kind of thing going on, is you, is the conditions wouldn't allow for peaceful, tranquil state uh, with the woman kind of walking around you who was in a very uh, confused mental, emotional state. But if you expand your view of meditation to include the flow of life, then th that was no obstruction. See, so this is is learning to 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 uh, use the flow of life, uh, being able to 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 uh, open to life as it happens, rather than trying to control life to fit an idea uh, of what we would like and what we want. So I just want to encourage this this uh, this practice because it it uh, you know I'm not trying to discourage tranquility or anything like that. But recognizing that if all I'd learned in the, my monastic life was how to concentrate my mind so I could be tranquil, then 
I would have, I would have, I would have probably been very, uh, you know, wouldn't able to handle that what happened this evening, except feeling that it was disrupting my practice and that people like that shouldn't come here and act like that and be very kind of uh, judgmental and uh, you know uh, disturbed by erratic behavior or what I'd rather do is see it as part of the flow of my life rather than see what she was doing was disrupting my practice this is how, how I find most more useful way of, of reflecting on my experience. Uh, Asala Puja. And if you want to stay till early in the morning, you can. Uh, no limits. Except the limits that you have <laughs> for yourself. And then tomorrow uh, is, uh, is the uh, uh, entering of us in the evening. And uh, so that will, we make our commitment. And uh, just see what that does. Like, just like observing, uh, commit, the word commitment can be, can arouse certain strong feelings, positive or negative. I remember going to a Christian monastery fairly recently and they, and they were saying, well, young people these days will not make any commitment to anything. They weren't like the, the old days. They could make a commitment to a monastery or to a marriage or something. But now, uh, young people don't want to commit themselves to anything. So they, they're just, you know... They, they don't have that sense of commitment. And then you hear the word commitment being used a lot. You know, like it's something you should make commitments. Or that that's a criticism. Or that, but the reflective mind, they, is uh, aware of how such words affect you or oneself. This is how, because these words do have power. Or the tone of voice, like saying, you should make a commitment. Very kind of, uh, kind of imperative, commanding tone of voice. Or whatever that affects. How, how something is said uh, affects us. Because this is what sensitivity is about. How the, the kind of tonal quality affects us. The meaning of the word, or some words that certainly have have a very very react to them in various ways. But the awakened awareness is the awareness that is a, that notices this, the reactivity, the habitual reactions, or the the impulses that we're experiencing. And so, learning to trust in that constancy of awareness. It is the way of non-suffering as we begin to appreciate that and respect that more and more. So I offer this as a reflection for this evening. <laughs>